Welcome to the Veterinary Business Matters Podcast brought to you by Oculus Insights. Here we will discuss topics related to veterinary business management. From small to large animal, this podcast strives to give you the insight and tools to help you improve your veterinary business. Oculus Insights, supporting businesses where great people want to be. Hi everyone, it's Mike Pownell again and welcome back to Veterinary Business Matters Podcast brought to you by Oculus Insights. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by, I would consider her a new friend. We've known each other for a while, but we got to spend some time at a conference together and really got to know and appreciate her and the practice she has, Dr. Tracy Walker of Allegheny Veterinary Service. Tracy, welcome. Thank you. So tell us a bit about your practice. Maybe just give us an overview of what Allegheny Equine Veterinary Service is all about. Allegheny Equine is a started as an ambulatory-only practice in rural West Virginia the year I finished my internship, so back in 2005. I came back, kind of started right off on my own, worked and built the practice in an area where there really hadn't been any service for a long time. And then after my goal was after 10 years to, to be in a hauling clinic, and that was, I actually made that goal right on time. We moved into a hauling clinic. And so we've expanded the practice with an additional vet, service staff, services, and, and a building. So we still have ambulatory vehicles. So now we're five years into the building. And, you know, we've kind of prided ourselves on always trying to offer services that people didn't even know were really available, you know, as far as what was available on farm. And especially part of the way I was able to take the time to get that practice going and build that was I also worked part-time doing small animal surgeries during that first 10 years. I had a great, great mentor um, on the small animal side. And so I definitely put in lots of hours, but I would, I would basically go in early in the mornings, do surgeries for him. And then towards the afternoon, I did that two and a half days a week in the afternoons would go see other large animal appointments. And it also, you know, help, helped me fill in the gaps in the winter season as well, and also made my surgery skills pretty good. So, so even as a large animal surgeon, I mean, I, I feel like as equine vets, we don't really get the chance to do surgery unless you're a surgeon or unless you're doing castrations. It really actually advanced my skills and abilities to do surgeries in general and was able to offer that then on the large animal side. Not, you know, not that I'm doing colic surgeries or anything, but, but certainly just uh, surgeries in general, crypt orchids and things like that. I was able to expand all that, that experience. You know, just to back up, so uh, Tracy and I were at a similar conference and we started talking and I was just like, what an amazing story because, you know, as we were just talking offline, I mean, you're not in the most glamorous area. You're in an area that's similar to a lot of places in North America that's rural. It's harder to attract vets. People say maybe socioeconomically doesn't have the, the buying power for high-end items, but it's kind of like you have a great blue-collar practice. And I kept on thinking, people need to hear about these kind of practices because you know there's a lot of negativity in the profession, but you're doing something remarkable. So let's go back a few years. And I'm curious, one of the things you said is that you started on your own after your internship. So uh, were you always like entrepreneurial? Did you always have a business sense? Did you know when you went into vet school that you, you were going to have your own practice? Yeah, that's probably fair to say that my mother was an entrepreneur and also had built um, a recreational business here in this area um, with rental cabins and uh, vacation homes. So I was actually from the time I was, I don't know, 13, 14, helping with you know, management of that stuff as far as even back of the house, uh, payroll, things like that. Those kind of things didn't scare me. So it's definitely not for everyone if you've not been around those kind of things. But the accounting work, payroll, none of that really scared me. 
and and the and the business management didn't scare me. And then even for quite a while, and even through a lot of vet school, I managed a restaurant that we also had um, as part of that business. So I, I would definitely agree that that's you know ownership in that sense is not for everyone. If you are overwhelmed by those kind of things, and and I. I felt very experienced that. So it only seemed natural for me to want to own. I mean, that just, it never really occurred to me to work for somebody else, to be honest. Kind of like me, it's like, I'm a horrible employee. Right. <laughs> Much better chance being the employer. Right. The people that I used to work for, I mentally given my forgiveness or my apologies to them several times. So when you started, I mean, even though you did have a background, you know, more of a background than most of us would who've started a business, there must have been some times when you're like, oh man, what am I gotten myself into? Did you have any of those? And if you don't mind sharing one or two of those stories? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. The Probably the first one was um, sitting on my porch when I first moved back, you know, two weeks into it and sitting there sobbing, thinking, I have picked the wrong career in the wrong place to be. I mean, when I think back on it now, of course, it's funny, but it wasn't then. And, and I just felt like I'd made all the wrong decisions. And then, you know, the business grew really well until... Of course, the slump, you know, in the 2008 era for here, it was delayed. It didn't really hit here until about 2011, a couple years later. And it really like, I mean, for my business had been growing by 20, 30% every year. And then all of a sudden it took a huge hit and I had to kind of second guess again. But I mean, there's definitely been times and even in the last couple of years, you know, as I had moved on then with more investment in this huge overhead of a building, there's been times I've sat back and been like, what is this monster that I've created that starts to kind of run its, you know, become its own thing. And sometimes that's absolutely a little scary. And probably sometimes I wonder how other people can handle that stress better than I can. I mean, we've had some situations for our own practice where, uh, you know, lying awake at night and you're like, the stress is killing me. Why am I doing this? And, you know, those three o'clock in the morning and you're like, I've made a bad mistake or probably did obviously have come through it. But it's sometimes you're like, why am I doing this to myself? Yeah, I guess one thing I realized about myself is I'm happiest when I'm consistently and constantly moving forward to the next thing to the new thing. And maybe that's all entrepreneurs. I, I don't know. I just felt like, particularly in the last year, you know, it was just really hard to find staff. And it was like, we'd get staff and you know, all of the staff we find here come off the street that we very rarely find um, credentialed staff. And I mean, maybe that's true in a lot of places. And, uh, you know, it was just getting so stressful having to train everybody and then continue to try to practice at the really high standard I was wanting to for the area. And I was really ready to pack it up um, and just sell. It was kind of funny because your, your discussion in Zeiss about investment or, or selling out now or, or, you know, keeping for 10 years and the calculations we went over and that was actually quite, quite timely for me, you know, something I kind of do, but then to, to see it in front of me was, was good. And then I don't know, it all works out. I mean, right. We put out ads in December looking for staff and all of a sudden we have, we've hired three actually credentialed staff in the last, you know, registered technicians. I mean, I haven't had that many technicians period apply in the last five years and all of a sudden we're here. So I don't know, I don't know what happens. Well, let's get back to that just to give people context. I did a presentation with the Oculus Insights Business Summit and Zeiss, our EU Summit. And it's the same presentation I did at our, our summit in Dallas in September. And basically, it, a lot of people are being forced or, or thinking they need to sell their practices now. There's a lot of private equity dangling large dollars. And we basically 
pretty well proved mathematically that if you hold on to your business for five to 10 years, you're going to make far more money than if you sell now. Now, of course, you know, you could be 65 and just like, I'm done with it. And yes, please sell. When you still have 10, 15, 20 years ahead of you, a lot more runway there that to sell now would really be a financially not the best move. And there are other reasons, but I don't want to go down that rabbit hole too much. Something you said when you gave your intro that I thought was really interesting, because what I love about your practice is that you it seems to go against all conventional wisdom about rural practices. And then you said that you want to offer services that people didn't know were available. Can you flesh that out? That was a memorable line. When I first started here, I mean, a lameness exam was, you know, somebody maybe, I mean, we had a couple small animal vets in the area that would help in, in a dire emergency, you know, they would come out and give us some butte. And I don't mean to, I mean, these were great mentors to me. Their work was small animal, not large animal. They were clear about that, but they would help in a time of need. There was one other veterinarian traveling in from out of the area that was coming in every couple months. I guess I've been graced in this time of technology. And, you know, I graduated in 2004. When you think about, I remember demoing during our lameness class in vet school, one of the one or two new Eklund units (laughs) that were on the East Coast. And, And now, I mean, within 10 years, it was standard of practice. And so, you know, that was that was my thing was to to try to keep moving forward with the technology and get into these services buy these things and and definitely if you would look at the business breakdown of of the cost analysis and I'm sure there's times where we've bought equipment that certainly didn't pay for itself but I was willing to make that sacrifice to to have that level of care and just worked really hard on that and now it's amazing how far the, the clientele has come and even how much the clientele has changed over the years even for my rural area that that's become expected. I mean, to have a, you know, digital x-ray and power dentistry and all those things that seem so obvious now, but they're really not that they haven't been around that long. And so do you think you've had to, I have no idea what you charge for things, but you always would think, well, in some of these more rural areas, you can't charge as much as you could around a city for a, a DR, but it seems like you're, you know, you're making it all work. I mean, are people as price sensitive in a rural, or at least your rural area as, as people would imagine they would be? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that they're as price sensitive as everybody thinks they are. I, I mean, I think they're practical. If this is a a lameness that the horse is likely finished for its career, then they, they're probably not going to do stem cell therapy on it. You know, right. I'm surprised at how much people are willing to do. Um, a lot of them are still treating them as their companions. I mean, probably, I guess to back up a second, one of the biggest things that I think is interesting about my practice and the way it's evolved in that sense is a good example would be colics. We rarely treat a colic. Rarely. 90 of our clients are land rich or what I call land rich. They might be cash poor, but they have lots of land. So, or they know somebody with land. So these horses are all kept in a natural environment turned out. So we do not see colics. Either they're getting missed or they're just not there. So we probably only refer one colic a year to a surgery center. Wow. Yeah. That being said, of the colics we see, which is still really few. I mean, I bet you we average one colic a month they tend to be really bad colics, really bad surgical, you know, probably strangulating lipomas, typical old gelding kind of thing. And I have found that interesting over the years because I definitely felt like in vet school and and even in my internship at University of Georgia that, you know, we spent a lot of time seeing colics and I we just don't see them. I mean, we just we mm-hmm. just don't see them and we don't have the gratification of a medical colic when we do see it. <laughs> so Right. That's going to be my next question is like you and another vet, how do you handle emergencies? Because you're basically on 50% of the time. Yeah, so that's that's what really was getting to me the first 
10 years as I was on call at the time. Obviously, there's lots of, you know, constituency in the AEP that's in that same position and you just kind of do. You know, again, what I found is being in that probably more blue collar setting is most people were just willing. They just wanted to call me. You know, I found the horse in the fence tonight. I've got it wrapped up. It's not bleeding. Can, you know, what do we do? And I'd say, okay, I can come tomorrow. But, you know, very rarely was it I have to get up at 11 o'clock and go go see that stuff. Right. They're pretty practical. They're pretty self-sufficient in that sense. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that kind of answers your question. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's different clientele. You get them in a high-end show barn and every bump, it's right. an emergency. And so... Right. So that's really not been as much of an issue. I mean, we have in the last so many years as we've continued to get so busy, we're starting to restrict, you know, where I would go see any emergency. As I started hiring help, I won for their own safety, um, told them that they don't ever have to go and see an emergency that they don't feel comfortable with for some reason, you know, and, and two... We've started restricting and only seeing emergencies for more established clients and stuff. Right. So as anybody has. Yeah. Let's go back another step. I always wonder, because I started my practice, our practice, my wife and I, right after uh, our internships. And I remember getting into discussions with classmates. We meet them at conferences and they were working as associates and they sort of looked at me like, wow, you're already owning your own practice. Wow. And then they would ask, what is the difference? And I'll share what I thought of, but what kind of sacrifices did you make or were there any sacrifices as a vet when your veterinary skills by going into your own practice right off the bat? Yeah. I mean, I guess I felt pretty capable or pretty confident and I guess for better, for worse, doing it in the first place. Certainly there's, I mean, probably other surgical skills that I kind of had to learn on my own or, but you know, I tell you what I, what I did to make up for that is a ton of CE. I mean, a ton mm-hmm. of CE. I think we're required to get somewhere around 20 hours a year. I mean, I, I probably average 40. I'm, I'm reading all the time. Days when I didn't have as many cases, I spent a lot of time reading. And, and again, the technology. I mean, you have, you know, I always had people at my, you know, beck and call on a phone that I, especially at the university that I, I could talk to and bounce cases off of. What was definitely hard on the day-to-day practice thing and I'm sure you, you've got a good size practice. You, you know, you can appreciate that general camaraderie that you have over the cup of coffee in the morning, you know, that when everybody's kind of getting their stuff together to go out the door and someone says, Oh, I saw this the other day. And it's that informal rounds. And I, that's probably what I missed the most part on a daily basis that affected right. my growth, you know, my, my personal growth in that. So I, I think it's all what you make of it. I mean, I just had to make a more conscious effort to really. Right you know, find that experience, find those wet labs, find those things. And it's expensive. I mean, I've spent a lot of money on expensive CE, but I think it's paid off. And that's kind of similar to our start off. I remember for the first year or so sort of saying to a couple of classmates that I spent more of my time after hours, like doing the bookkeeping and entering Mm -hmm. stuff when I could have been reading journals. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, as you were talking, it reminded me, I went to a boatload of CE first few years. Yeah. Like just addicted to it because when you are starting by yourself and I was, and I was lucky because I actually had my wife and partner in practice and her name is first on the, on the name of the business because she's smarter. (laughs) And I I was lucky to have that, but we had each other, but it's still, when you're starting a business, that's as much as, as a new vet, you, you fret about a a case that's not going right. Well, when you have your new business, you're fretting about that as well too. Yeah. And I think the thing is too, I mean, when I look at the volume of what I was doing then I felt busy, right. But I mean, realistically, I had a lot more time to read about that stuff. And over time, then I didn't have to read about it. So luckily, as I got busier anyway. Yeah, for sure. 
So let's let's move ahead a bit. When you decided to build a facility, I mean that's never an easy undertaking. So can you share some of the highs and lows of building your own facility? I kind of spoke at AEP to this effect of some of this about deciding to go that brick and mortar. And I will start with probably the decisions that made me want to do this. Because I know there's probably a lot of solo ambulatory practitioners thinking, oh, I wish I had this. And you're trying to decide whether to make that jump. And for me, the biggest thing was looking at the future and not having, I mean, to me, and, and you as the MBA could argue with me about this, that, you know, what is an ambulatory practice worth? And I was very concerned that I didn't have a retirement and in the sense of an investment um, beyond aging equipment and a, you know, a client list that's worth whatever. So, mm-hmm. so that was a big decision for me. Part of it was uh, me aging, you know, I'm not that old, but I was, you know, it's cold in West Virginia. <laughs> so maybe not as cold as it always is. Oh, I'm, I'm in Canada here. Easy now. But we get, you know, 150 inches or more of snow a year here. So we... So you get more yeah, snow than we, we get, do. Though. It's all Much that more. lake effect snow that comes from you guys. So we get yeah. a lot of that. You know, I just was like, okay, I definitely don't want to be out in this all the time. And just, again, it was just like this dream of mine to have the Holland Clinic. I mean, nobody here, I mean, people come through our clinic and they had never, they never even seen a recovery suite or seen like hospital stalls. They just had no idea that those things were available. So it was just always kind of my dream to have that and become kind of an oasis in this area for that. So that's kind of what, you know, it was all those things. It was, it was retirement. It was an investment. It was age. It was, and increasing the level of service. And as I was getting busier, I just couldn't travel the five county radius that I was doing by myself. And the other thing was, I really wanted to hire help. And to hire help, I mean, I had technicians and and Katie, as you met, and uh, when we were in um, the Netherlands, and she's, of course, been my right hand through all this. But I I needed to have that second veterinarian to be able to help with the on-call. And to do that, I kind of had to get bigger to do that. There was not enough business in just the ambulatory work to do that. But by expanding the practice, because as as the the building now, and I might not have been clear about this, also has a very robust small animal hospital with it, which has allowed me to purchase additional diagnostics that, you know, I'd probably never be able to purchase before for both ends. And because they're utilized across both the small animal, large animal services, they become um, actually profitable. You know, so so it was all those decisions and, and, you know, to be able to have that second veterinarian, I needed that extra business. And then it's like things continue to grow. And what had been happening was up until that point, and I, this is at one point you may or may not remember, but I had called you one time and we just talked mm-hmm. and I, I just said, that. you know, yep. here's the problem. This is what I'm grossing. I'm not making enough net out of that gross and I just can't figure out how to gross anymore. I mean, it basically was, there's, there still comes a point that, there's only so many hours in the day that you can work and so many days a year that you can work. And it basically just wasn't ending up where I was wanting as far as my take home. Um, it was kind of all those decisions to kind of stop and uh, redirect a little bit. It's actually been a, ultimately a good decision for sure. What I find impressive and uh, is the fact that, I mean, this was a thought out decision over several layers. It wasn't just like, hey, I don't want to be going driving all over the place. I mean, you you had that long-term view, Mm -hmm. retirement, you had the short-term view, and then you sort of looked at it, well, how can I maximize my assets, my Mm -hmm. diagnostics? Well, let's do the small animal then. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's worked well. I mean, and like I said, because of that, I mean, we, you know, we definitely, we have endoscopy, we have all this stuff that, I mean, I would never 
I would never be able to have all that stuff. Um, but I think about the only toy we don't have in this hospital is digital uh, dental x-ray. And we're getting ready to purchase that. I mean, other than that, we have laser, right. we have, you know, everything. And it's because we can diversify that stuff across the services. And I feel like, as you and I talked back then, I mean, I feel like in, you know, rural America, that's, I, I think that's going to be a growing practice model to be able you know, because as people demand this kind of service, the clientele is going to demand it. And how do, how do we continue to offer it? And I don't know why it seems like on the East Coast that this is not as much of a practice model, but, you know, anywhere in, in the West, it is definitely a practice model to have good medicine at a, at a larger mixed animal hospital that might have five or six doctors, two or three of them doing small animal, two or three of them doing large animal. Same in Canada. Yeah, you go to the prairies and they're mainly, or a lot of them are large mixed animal practices, but we're very segmented on the east side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when you look at rural, you know, rural practices, and that seems to be always the area where it's hard to attract people to rural practices, it's hard to offer the services. So what are your thoughts? I mean, you, you, you touched a little bit on it, but like, for example, as your practice is growing, how are you attracting vets? How are you, you were able to hire three new RVTs? What is it about your practice that all of a sudden people want to work for you in a very rural area? Yeah. I don't, I mean, if it's for the veterinarians, I may not be doing a good job of that. So I don't know, I don't know that I can answer that. It's really difficult in the veterinary, you know, as, as every place is looking for veterinarians. You know, for me, it's been trying to find people that really just, you just have to want to be here. I mean, essentially. And I talked to a friend of mine the other day who's on a board for one of the local medical clinics. And he said every doctor they found that has stayed has wanted to be here despite the the pay. Now, obviously, they're being paid fairly, but um, it doesn't matter if you're paying them three times the market you know, rate, if they don't want to be here in this rural area, they're still not going to stay. And I, I found that kind of interesting because that is exactly what I've found. You know, right now I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a, a really great associate that has um, returned to this area and understands rural medicine, understands uh, rural blue collar crowds, and also does a bang up job with her medicine. So, so she's uh, been really great to have. Um, we have had a advertising out for a third veterinarian for uh, since about this time last year and interviewed several. You know, we we are, even though we're in a economically depressed area in that sense, it is a beautiful recreational mecca um, with the ski resorts, lakes and all that. So it, and um, but, you know, we're three hours to the nearest airport. And I think you and I talked a little bit about that when we were traveling. It's for us. Yeah. I mean, we're three and a half hours to Pittsburgh and four hours to Dulles. So, you know, it takes an extra day of travel anywhere to, to get out right. of here. And, and for some people, that's too much. And we also, we don't have a Starbucks in town, you know, and that's really hard. As far as the support staff, you know, we've had some great people with us over the years. They've been very dedicated, very compassionate people. It's what really becomes expensive is training them. I mean, it just... It, uh, we just, like I said, after recently hiring some of these uh, people that are been well-trained and credentialed technicians, it's like, gosh, you realize that it's worth paying them a lot more an hour because they really are trained. I mean, you can roll them right into the practice really quickly. That's mm -hmm. actually been kind of a new experience for me because otherwise, you know, when we've hired someone, we've been glad to train them, but it also takes almost a year before they're really, really up to par. And then probably two years before they're really, really rolling with us. Yep. You know, they have to see it as a career. So that's my philosophy on that has been really increasing benefits and in pay, probably 
beyond. I mean, I did have one the other day that apparently he was he was complaining that we pay him so much now that he knows he can't go anywhere else. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, yes, <laughs> my plan is <laughs> But you bring up a great point because, again, we talk about benefits. We talk about the increasing uh, expectations. The job market is tight as mm-hmm. we're talking. Wages are going up. And so, again, you know, you confound the other assumption about rural practices is that you don't make enough money to pay people well. Right. And, you know, so often you see people in the rural practices and they, their complaint is, well, we're, we're poor, our clients are poor, we can't afford to pay people. But again, you're bucking the trend on that. Yeah. I don't know what happened so differently in this last month when we, when we put ads out, but I feel like, and then, you know, we've had a student who had gone away to a, a great technician program has been working in Lexington, Kentucky for the last several years, called me up the other day and she said, I'm tired of it being too expensive down here and I want to come home. And I had always told her, you're welcome home whenever. So now without even having to hire anyone else, she's going to be here in March. <laughs> so it's fantastic. You know, <laughs> This is great. So I guess all I can say is, so the ones I've got, I just want to try to train them and treat them really, really well and try to keep them around because it is exhausting and expensive. To, to keep hiring and training. I have definitely realized that. I think people underappreciate that, the expense of training and the, and it's not just training the new person, but the stress it puts on the existing okay. people to have to go through it again. And customers get frustrated and you get medical errors. Right. I mean, it, it obviously, I 100% agree, you know, pay a bit more upfront and you have the longer lasting client, uh, staff for sure. Well, and again, as I said, I think my natural thing is to always be wanting to move forward. And I feel like I can't keep yeah. moving forward with a new service or a new thing or polishing this into the practice or what if we're constantly having to back up and start from scratch with someone new. And I've realized that it's just worth a lot to me do the best I can and to try to work towards a livable wage. And, and I'm very fortunate that this year, we had mo- a lot of our equipment loans and stuff were on a five-year plan. So as of this year, we're going to start really paying things off like crazy and our cash flow is really going to change. That's great. I have planned that this cash flow is going to be pretty quickly funneled into employees to, to keep that part going. Yeah. Through Oculus, we're working with a practice in Canada and we have, you know, convinced them to raise the salaries on their non-vet staff and had a bit of pushback, but we did it. And their turnover rate is in less than, you know, more than a half than it was before. I mean, just nobody's leaving and it's just, oh, it's so much easier when somebody has been there more than three months, six right. months. It is paying off in dividends. Right. So they're they're already asking now, like, well, can we pay them more right. next year? Right. They see the value is so great. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so what is next for Allegheny Equine Veterinary Service? You're always moving forward. What does what does the future look like? I mean, as as you know, I just finished the ABVP certification, which was just a personal goal on this. So I've got that done. I don't know yet. I, I would like to add another veterinarian at least immediately, but you know, that my, my cohort, my existing associate is also would like to add a, she's, she's quite interested in, in uh, cow medicine. And we've got the space here on this property to add a cattle hauling facility, which I think would be a new, hmm. new idea again for this, for this market. No one's ever seen that kind of stuff, but I also can bet that 90% of our clients that are land rich are not a shoot rich. <laughs> so, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to have our own shoot here where people could um, haul in and again, be more efficient. Um, I think that would be great. It's funny as you're talking and uh, 
I recently put out to Facebook quite a bit about, you know, what has changed over the past decade and in, in, uh, that practice and writing a blog on it. But it seems like as we're t- you and I are talking, I'm getting this vision of we're almost like this return to the James Harriet style right. of, you know, in the rural areas, you've got to be for everything. And, and I'm just thinking of, you know, we, uh, of, of vets who I've met who've worked in rural areas and they love it way more than people I know who work in urban areas because the quality of life is amazing. It's a great place to raise a family, recreation, but it's the clients. And I think everybody gets this perception that you want to work for the money clients. I would take a backyard horse any day. Yeah. And you know what's funny? I was talking to Andy Parks. He was one of my mentors at University of Georgia, and I saw him somewhere. And I have fallen into this niche here of what I do is a lot of lameness, which is you know, it's probably like every equine vet that graduates that I want to be, I'm going to do lameness. And then it's really hard to learn. It's really time consuming to do. And then I got to where I didn't care about it. And then I started doing more of it. And even for this little niche, I mean, I get people hauling in from all over the place to get lameness done. You would be surprised what these exams total, <laughs> and, um, it, you know, that will be several hours, very thorough. They'll get a big print out when they leave. But easily, I do lameness exams on a regular basis that are over $1,000. I know Dr. Parks was just amazed. He just said, I'm just really amazed that that you've got that kind of clientele. And I said, I, I don't know where, what it is. Um, you know, even though it is what we consider a blue collar area, we still have the guy that goes out and ropes on the weekend every now and then, you know, and mm-hmm. he still wants that horse. You know, he may not be, it may not be the million dollar horse, but he may have 15,000 in it, you know, and that's still a lot of money that he wants to make sure that it's moving the way it should. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting. And, and, but I agree with you. I mean, sometimes having the backyard horse and less pressure um, is also in just people appreciating that you're there for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there, that, that is a trade-off I think is the, the client expectation, which mm-hmm. gets, hard after a while yeah. after years of it versus you know when people respect your boundaries and because everybody works hard yeah. and they know you know they, they appreciate you for working hard so that's awesome yeah yeah i feel very fortunate in that sense for sure you know it's interesting and when you were talking about some of that stuff you know and what where people are with a lot of people are so upset in veterinary medicine about um the version of losing losing certain things like the pharmacy and stuff for for income and and I don't know how your practice has been set up, but one thing I've always done with my practice from the very beginning was I've always tried to establish our practice has always been set up as services, not drugs. So obviously yes. we make money off the drugs um, and, and that inventory you have to, but we really have always separate out our service fees. And that's, you know, interesting because I knew when you were, you were discussing that the other day with some people that it, we've, we've really tried to separate that out. And so as a result, when everybody's in a panic, about their prescriptions going out the door. I, I really am kind of like, it is what it is. Yeah. it's You're not going to stop that wave. Yeah. But the one thing that is never a commodity is your service. Right. And especially if you present it as such. And I mean, like great medical records, taking your time, all the things that you're doing. You can't get that online. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, Tracy, this has been, I'm, I'm inspired because as I said, I just did this poll, this unofficial poll. And when I talked about what's changed and, you know, the mood I get is, People are pretty getting down sour on the profession. And I think you are bucking the trends. And whenever, you know, all the things where people say this won't work, you're making it work. 
plus. Mm-hmm. So I, I commend you. I think it's really exceptional what you're doing. So thank you very, very much and continued success to you. Well, thank you. And, and, um, as you met part of my team, I mean, it's, it's been, um, a lot of hard work, but also having, having a great support network behind me for sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much. All right. At Oculus Insights, we care a lot about animals, but we also care about the health of the veterinary profession. Our goal is to support veterinary businesses around the world by helping you clear your path to success.